Good afternoon, and thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday. Another busy day coming up on the program. We'll get the very latest on what's happening in the B.C. election campaigns. Also going to talk a little bit more about the findings with the Cleveland Dam. Human error found to be the cause at this point. It looks to be the cause of that release of the water at the dam. We're going to check in with a West Vancouver City Councillor to talk about that a bit later on in the program. Right now, though, taking a look at what has been happening at Vancouver City Council, a special council meeting held this morning. And joining us to talk more about what has been happening is Sarah Kirby-Young, an NPA Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor, thank you so much for taking some time. Hi, Jill. How are you? Uh, very good. How about you? Good, thank you. Uh, I was listening to part of the meeting. I will admit I didn't uh, get to listen to the entire thing. I know uh, council is uh, recessed right now until this afternoon. What was discussed this morning? So this morning, council kicked off a special council meeting, and it was um, in response to a motion brought forward by the mayor to deal with emergency relief for unsheltered Vancouver residents. Um, And so we heard from staff this morning on a number of different options and have started into speakers and are now sort of going to hear through those speakers before council gets into the heart of the debate. Is there one particular um, idea that that council is leaning towards? I know that the the motion and the suggestions in the motion look at things such as leasing or purchasing uh, things like hotels, single room occupancy hotels. Um, There's also the uh, temporary disaster relief shelter uh, idea, which would be uh, sanctioned tent cities, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, some other options. Is there one particular option or one direction you see council going? Yeah, so let's unpack that a little bit because I think there has been a lot of discussion around this. And and to be clear, the motion that the mayor has brought forward um, for emergency relief speaks specifically to purchasing or leasing hotels, which is something that um, council has discussed before. It's already underway. Um, That's um, what his motion focuses on. So nothing new in terms of a new strategy there. That's something that council is committed to. Um, He also suggests that we allocate up to $30 million to um, to facilitate acquisition of those hotels. Um, and again, for as far as I can gather, I don't believe that that's new funding. We have $75 million in the capital plan for affordable housing. I believe there's about $30 million that is left unallocated. Um, and so I think the mayor is proposing carrying on with the strategy that we're already doing with money that we have already allocated. The challenge with that and his motion is that um, staff are saying it could take up to six months in terms of fully acquiring hotels and getting people into them. Um, and it doesn't deal with Strathcona Park and some of the very real impacts on the neighbourhood and the fact that we're heading into wintertime and we have a lot of unsheltered people in the city. So I think there's been discussion amongst a number of councillors, um, and I have certainly favoured expansion of a winter shelter program and looking at, um, as a number of other councillors have, um, and have been discussing options and looking at really doing a disaster relief type response for COVID and, it's, and expanding winter shelter programs to provide some relief to the Strathcota community, but to give people somewhere to go to get out of the cold and the wet as winter is coming. What does a winter shelter program actually look like? So this is something that um, it's sort of a, a tried and true model in the sense that um, we've done this with BC Housing, um, who have been great partners to the city of Vancouver. And typically those shelters are ramped up in, uh, in the wintertime. We usually have additional beds um, because of the conditions outside. Uh, but I think the discussion amongst councillors right now is looking at an enhanced model that um, would really take it to a new level with COVID um, and provide for some, you know, safety protocols in terms of sanitation and hand washing, um, but also be available on a not just sort of overnight, but um, throughout the day as well to give people somewhere safe to be. Uh, does that space exist, though, that could be transformed into a shelter like that? 
Uh, there are a number of spaces um, that uh, that can be utilized, and typically that's ongoing work and looking at uh, locations to to staff up for. I think right now staff are looking for some direction from council because we haven't uh, they haven't been given some to date. It became really apparent with um, the mayor's motion and his vote at a previous meeting that he does not support working towards decamping the park um, and moving people into another situation. Um, and I think that the community is looking for a, a combination strategy that provides some short-term relief and helps those people that really need it um, while we're working on the longer-term solution. Uh, I know the mayor was asked that during the meeting today, uh, if he supports the decamping of Strathcona Park. Is it a jurisdictional problem in that it would have to come from the park board? Um, he was asked that, and I, I actually asked him that question. Um, and his answer is that it's jurisdictional. Um, but going beyond that, I think we need to reach across the aisle and work with our partners. Um, and uh, his he, his answer is no, that, that he doesn't. Um, when we had language on the floor previously, and council voted on it to work towards decamping that park and moving people into alternatives, the mayor voted no. Um, so I think he's made his position on that quite clear. Um, and that's what's concerning the community that he's not sort of willing to look at those interim solutions um, and, and just move forward solely on this hotel acquisition strategy. Uh, there was a question of timing about that as well. And as you mentioned, uh, staff telling City Council that acquiring hotels and converting hotels into housing could take months or would take months. Uh, I think it was, it might have even been the mayor that said uh, that in the past, BC Housing has been able to do that in a number of days. Why, why is there such a difference then in the timelines? That's a great question. It's not information that uh, council has. He, he suggested it could be done in seven days, and you know staff seemed quite surprised by that. Uh, he is professing to have information that he hasn't shared or made available to council. So hopefully we'll get some clarification on that. Um, it should be noted that BC Housing did pay a very top dollar for those properties. I don't know if that factored into the timeline, but. Um, I'm trusting the report and the information back from our professional staff that are saying, you know, this can't be turned around in a few days. And when we talk about these options that are being looked at, and I think the number that is often put out is that there are 750 people in Vancouver that need housing. Are we talking about people who are living in Strathcona Park or are we talking about somebody else? So those, the 750 is, is speaking to homelessness um, across the city aggregately and broadly and you know we just received a presentation on the homeless count at council yesterday um, when we're talking so that's sort of um, the unsheltered and sort of most in immediate need when we're talking about Strathcona Park there's an estimate that's approximately 200 people of those 400 tents that may be homeless but staff haven't been able to go in there so I think that's a gap as well is that we don't know the true number but we also haven't sent in a team of mental health um, and addictions experts to do assessment and find out who is in there and what actual services do they need. It may not be sufficient to just put them into a hotel room, for example, what kind of treatment and wraparound supports do they need. So um, there's very little information available in terms of who's in the park and and a bit of a breakdown around what demographics they fall into and what services they need and what issues they're dealing with. Uh, do you see that happening at any point? Because even talking to people who live in the inside of the park, it seems like there's the inner core of the park and then there's the outer ring of the park because one of the residents of the inside said uh, there are truly homeless people on the inside that are one camp, but he was saying they get preyed upon by those who have kind of formed a perimeter and they're the ones that are bringing crime and theft, stealing from the homeless. Uh, why can't we get city workers or police or, or mental health teams in there to figure out exactly what's going on? 
Uh, I think it's political will. There are ringleaders at that camp, as you said. Um, and, you know, our staff have referred to them as the camp leadership, and I think that's wrong. Um, I think they are the ones who have self-appointed themselves to speak. They're more of the activists or protesters or, um, you know, are taking advantage of some people, but they're not representative of the people that generally are in trouble there in the park. Um, and so I think that is a significant issue. And quite honestly, they have been deferred to. Um, and I think that we do need to move past that and find a way to get in and talk to the people that actually need homes. It's really important to note, too, from a public safety perspective, and I'm sure you've heard these stats that break and enters in the neighborhood in Strathcona are up 68% and weapons offenses are up 50%. That we know as these camps go on, and the longer they're there, they're much more subject to violent crime and other issues. Um, and we've heard from the DPD, we heard this morning, that people that are homeless themselves, such as the, the really needy residents inside that Strathcona camp, are 23% more likely to suffer from violent crime and be the victim of it. Um, than regular members of the public. So that's incredibly concerning. Uh, so what happens next at Council? So we will hear uh, continue hearing speakers after lunch. Um, I do not think that we'll get through them today, unfortunately. So we'll probably have to have the final decision on this on another date, and we don't have that date yet. And just before I let you go, I know there was also a discussion of tiny house villages and a proposal perhaps to put those at City Hall. Is that something that's seriously being looked at? So there is a discussion around the notion of tiny houses in general, which could be a a component um, if they're done quickly on things. I think they're very suited to things like working in partnership with nonprofits or churches, those, you know, vacant lots, that kind of thing. Um, I really want to clear the air. There's a number of sites suggested, whether it was for temporary encampments in Chinatown or potentially putting temporary encampments or tiny homes at City Hall. That was just simply information provided back by staff. It was not recommendations at all. So, um, I, I, I just want to stress, I don't think that anybody on council is viewing that as a valid option. And for all the folks in Chinatown, uh, when it was suggested that there would be encampments being set up there or um, on the city hall lands, I don't think that's where council is going at all. All right, uh, councillor, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. This was a poll done by Research Co. taking a look at how decided BC voters are, how people are feeling as we are at this point in the election campaign. And joining me to talk a bit more about the findings is the president of Research Co., Mario Canseco. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, So what did you ask people in this poll? Well, we asked uh, our regular questions related to voting, approval rating, the best premier for the province, who's best to handle issues. And we really wanted to find out a couple of things. First of all, what was going to happen with the BC Conservatives? There were hints that they were going to run a lot of candidates in the election. They're only running in 19 constituencies. So what is going to happen to that vote? And also try to figure out if there's a little bit of a change in the way people perceive the leaders. And it seems to be steady as it goes when it comes to the way voters are feeling about John Horgan, Andrew Wilkinson and Sonia now. But the NDP has extended its lead when it comes to voting intention. Hmm. So if, you, if you're asking people then uh, which leader they support, what kind of numbers are we looking at? Well, the ratings are fairly standard uh, when we compare them to what happened back in September. We see 65 percent of likely voters saying that they approve of the way John Horgan has handled his duties. Uh, The numbers are lower for Andrew Wilkinson at 40 percent and for Sonia Furstenau at 33 percent. So really not a lot of opportunities for them to connect, partly because of the way in which this campaign is being run. You know, there's fewer opportunities for 
uh, actual interaction with the candidates and the leaders. Everything is done with social distancing. You can have uh, your regular campaign stops where you have a gym full of people who want to hear the leader of a party. So definitely they've been constrained by the pandemic uh, and it's been difficult for them to get some traction on the numbers. Uh, which might uh, be why I would ma- think maybe we'll see a, a big turnout as far as the debate uh, when we have the, the consortium debate, because like you said, there hasn't been that opportunity for the one-on-ones or, or any kind of town hall type meetings. Well, yeah, definitely. I think it's it's definitely a good chance, uh, especially for the undecided voters, uh, to try to figure out who they'll support in the election. Uh, we also see that there's a lot of people who are voting by mail. You know, more than 600,000 ballots have been requested. So your opportunities to connect with voters are getting slimmer and slimmer. You know, there are people who already voted, and maybe you're somebody who lives in a riding that might be affected by a by something that is announced tomorrow, either by the NDP or the Liberals, and you've already cast your ballot. So I think this is also one of the reasons that we've heard a lot of the party platforms early on in the campaign. You don't want to lose any voters who maybe you would have swayed uh, because you said that what you were going to do too late in the campaign. Uh, and when we're talking about decided voters, so you also asked people that were decided voters, what was the likelihood that they could change their mind? Yes, this is crucial, particularly for the Green Party, because we see 77 percent of likely voters saying, uh, sorry, decided voters uh, saying that they won't change their mind. Uh, But among Green Party voters, it's only 71 percent. So you have about three out of 10 people who are thinking right now of voting for the B.C. Greens who may end up supporting a different party. Uh, This has a lot to do with whether you have a Green Party candidate in your riding because they're not running a full slate. Uh, But also, as the campaign progresses, if you start to feel that your vote is going to go somewhere else, uh, it might be an opportunity for the NDP to capitalize on that. Uh, We don't see a lot of fluctuation from green voters in 2017 to the Liberals, only 2 percent. We definitely see more voters going from the Greens in 2017 to the NDP in 2020 at 27 percent. So if you're an undecided voter who is uh, thinking about voting for the Greens, uh, if you can't find a candidate in your riding, your choices are fairly limited. And did you ask people, or do we know, uh, according to this poll, how many people are undecided? We have right now 7% of residents uh, who are likely voters who are undecided. Now, what we do here is we move into a likely voter model. This is something that we're also doing in our United States polls, which is essentially trying to figure out who is actually casting a ballot. If you're confident that you will do so, have you voted in other elections? You know, we don't want to have a survey where you have an immense amount of undecided people because you're not really looking at them as likely voters. So the number is definitely lower right now. We started at 10%, now it's 7%. As we get closer to the election, the number will get smaller. You also asked uh, people what uh, the main issues are. Obviously, uh, we're in a pandemic, so things are a little different. But any surprises there as far as uh, what people are focused on? Well, that one has been remarkably consistent. You know, going back to other elections that I've had the opportunity to cover, back in 2009, you had about 45, 50 percent of B.C. residents who said it's the economy. And it was completely understandable. We were coming off the global financial crisis three and a half years ago. It was mostly housing and really driven by Metro Vancouver. This time around, it's three issues at the top, housing, poverty and homelessness especially for those who are aged 18 to 34, the economy and jobs for Generation X, 
and healthcare for those who are age 55 and over. So there's no one salient issue uh, that is dominating. I think depending on your age and to a lesser extent where you live, that is what you're concentrating on right now. And not to suggest that uh, the polls aren't correct, but uh, Richard Zussman, who is uh, who joins us every day talking about this, he's a global reporter in Victoria, uh, he did send out a reminder for people. So in 2013, uh, as he sent it out saying 16 days before the election, the NDP were at 44%, the Liberals were at 31 uh, as far as decided voters and uh, who would you vote for? And as we know in that case, the Liberals still won the election. Well, there's definitely things that can change from now until the election. You know, even going back to the election that we had three and a half years ago, we had a situation back then when the liberals were still ahead a couple of weeks before the race. It ultimately ended up in a tie. So, yeah, you have to continue polling. I think one of the problems that we had in the U.S. back in 2016 is that we didn't have any final polls conducted uh, in specific states that were crucial, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. So this is what we have now. Uh, it's definitely not what is going to transpire on election day yet, but that's why we keep on polling all the way till the end. Being with us. Well, unfortunately, I know so many people in this province have dealt with Alzheimer's, either have a loved one who has been struck with that disease or know somebody who has the disease. And that is the case of Deb Hope and anybody who has watched the news in BC, likely knows the name, knows the face. Deb Hope worked at what was BC TV and became Global BC News for decades, an icon in this province. She retired just a few years ago, just six years ago at the age of 59. And if you've been seeing the tributes today that are pouring in, it is because the story of her battle with Alzheimer's has now been made public. And there is a link to that on our website if you want to read more about it. There is also a story in the Vancouver Sun today, and it was written by Ian Haysom and Clive Jackson, who uh, were the managing editor and news director at uh, BCTV and later uh, Global BC News. I just want to read one line from this uh, the piece in the paper. It reads, Today, she is a shadow of herself, living in a nursing home, unable to recognize even her husband, Roger, or her two daughters, Catherine and Roxanne, or stepdaughter, Leah. And the piece, while it does talk about Deb Hope's battle with Alzheimer's, also celebrates her very storied career and just what she meant to people. And joining me to talk a bit more about Deb Hope is Clive Jackson, who is the former BCTV and Global BC Managing Assignment Editor. Clive, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. It's just such a sad occasion, heartbreaking occasion, actually. Uh, so many people won't, wouldn't have known anything about this. Uh, they remember when Deb Hope retired a few years ago. Can you talk a little bit about her struggles with Alzheimer's? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, would tell a few people in conversations over the last few years about Deb's struggle, and people were absolutely stunned because Deb was so full of life. People remember her as being this vibrant anchor, this mainstay of uh, BCTV and then Global, and they were stunned to find someone only 65 uh, suffering with this dreadful disease. And so I think the article today will have shocked, I was going to say thousands, millions of people in British Columbia who grew up with Deb, you know, she's such an iconic person. And then to see this wonderful woman suffering in this way, and for her family, her husband, Roger, who's still a cameraman at Global, and her daughters, it's beyond tragic. 
Talk a bit about Deb and the people, the person that people will remember and her, the highlights of her career, her career that spanned decades on BCTV, on that channel. Uh, do you have an anecdote or a story or something you can share that really kind of captures her spirit? Well, I think, you know, there were two sides of Deb. There was a public side that people saw, the professional Deb, the, the storyteller, the anchor. I mean, she was absolutely wonderful, and people respected her for that. But it was, Deb was the person. I mean, you actually, the story that I think about Deb most is you walk around the station, and you heard Deb before you saw her. She had this incredible laugh, and you could hear her laughter right the way through the station, way before she came into the, into the uh, newsroom. And uh, that was Deb. She was almost the con- of a newsroom, she was a very bright person in every possible way, academically and personality-wise. And she was sort of able to say what was right and what was wrong. And, you know, this is the sort of thing we should be doing or we shouldn't be doing. She was a terrific asset for the newsroom. And she has so much talent. I mean, people mostly remember her for anchoring, which, of course, anchored for, I don't know, probably the better part of 20 years. But she was a brilliant reporter before that. She was really good at whatever she turned her hand to. She could... She was a very, very good news reporter. She could do breaking news. She was good live. But more than anything else, I think I remember her for her abilities to um, uh, do features. Uh, she was absolutely brilliant. She had an elegant way with words. She wrote her stories so elegantly. She, people could look up to her because she really was above most of us. She was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, she did all sorts of stories. The one I remember particularly is um, way back. Uh, she did a story about a man called Swanson, who was a guy who came up with the, um, some of the famous whistles in British Columbia. She did, he did the Royal Columbian. He did uh, the BC Ferries. He did the uh, uh, BC Hydro Building. And Deb did a story on him. And it just it's something that I remember for the rest of my life. It was so well done and it was so clever. Um, it, she was very good. She went out to cover royal visits. She ended up having dinner with the Queen on the Royal Yacht Britannia. She could do that kind of thing. And she could uh, cover. She went down to, uh, to uh, Los Angeles uh, when Gretzky went down there and covered that. So she had, you know, an ability to do so many different things, which most of us didn't have. And she was she was really, really good at it. Uh, Some of the photos being shared today also uh, show her laughing. And so many people are sharing stories about that laughter, kind of picking up on what you said in that you would hear Deb before you might see her come into the room. Uh, It just seems like that is such such a, a, a of an amazing quality to be this hard news reporter, this this anchor, but then also have this extremely light and and bright side. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what made Deb unique, that she could do everything, you know, um, and that she had, uh, she was so much fun about her. And she was also a very, very generous person. I mean, aside from what you saw on the air, she was also incredibly giving of her time. She did so much work for charities. I remember she did a lot of work. She was almost the face of the Variety Club. She did the Courage to Come Back Awards, which were, I thought, uh, iconic in their day. Um, And then she did the Down Syndrome Foundation. I don't know for sure, but I believe that her work for those three organizations alone must have brought in millions and millions of dollars over the years because she was, you know, so um, embedded with them and so uh, keen to, uh, to help them. She was inspiration. 
And now, you know, um, here we are talking about uh, rapid decline uh, with Alzheimer's. And, um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, people will leave a legacy for Deb by making a donation to the uh, BC or the Alzheimer's Society of BC in her name. And that, that there'll be enough money uh, put aside in Deb's name to really make a difference and to leave a fantastic uh, legacy after what she did for so many other people. What do you think Deb would want people to do? And I think that's a great idea. And there will be so many people eager to make a donation to the Alzheimer's Society. But knowing Deb, what do you think she would want us to do as far as fighting this disease and and to pay tribute to her? Um, I think she'd want to see everything possible done to, to get to uh, the bottom of this pernicious disease, to come up with some kind of drug that helps uh, or ultimately cures this, this dreadful disease, which is affecting so many people, I mean, around the world. It's, it, you know, and I think that's what she'd like to see. Um, I, I think the other side of Deb, of course, is she has an incredibly warm and loving family. Her husband, Roger, she has two daughters, a grandchild, and I'm sure that she would also uh, want to make sure that, uh, you know, they, they're suffering too, but they suffer as little as possible. And because she was so young when she retired and when those first few signs came out, I mean, it is such an eye-opening case to to look at this. Not only, I mean, the the tragedy of this, but I think we often equate this disease with much older people. And and this will hopefully help educate or at least get that conversation going of, of the importance, again, in finding a drug that works and finding a cure. That's right. That's absolutely right. Because, you know, you look back on things that happen. We went, my wife and I went to Africa with Roger and Deb in 2012, and it was a perfectly normal, fun-filled trip. But looking back, there were a few, very, very few signs that Deb wasn't quite herself. And looking back, these little things, you know, you don't know that this is what's beginning to happen. And then in 2015, we went back to Africa, and at this time, the signs were far more um, prevalent, and, and you could see that she was really struggling. And then we went one more time two years after that, a couple of years ago. And this time, you know, she could barely function um, in many ways. But she got so much pleasure out of seeing the animals. And I'm so glad that Roger took her that one final trip because it was a struggle to, to, to take her. But, but she got so much out of it. But, um, you know, I think that, um, I think that uh, it, it was a wonderful uh, uh, thing for her to have done towards the end. And as we look back, we, we saw the progress of the disease, not knowing in the first place, you know, what was happening. And it was the same at work. People at work began to notice a few things with Deb, you know, stumbling over words, uh, there were various signs, but nobody, nobody in their wildest dreams dreamt that she had Alzheimer's until towards the very, very end when, you know, things were getting worse. And, it, and then she's gone downhill so fast. That's the other thing is that, you know, she retired five or six years ago and the downhill decline has been so rapid it's so tragic it's just unbelievable and i know we all know people have alzheimer's we all know that mm-hmm. uh, of course but deb was so uh, so energetic it just seems incredible that she'd be like this well, Clive, I know... Uh, so young, as you say. Yeah, I know uh, she was much more uh, than uh, an employee, a co-worker, also a, a dear friend of yours, and it's difficult to speak about this. But I thank you so much for sharing the story, for writing this beautiful piece uh, that's in the Vancouver Sun today. Clive, thank you. 
Hey, thank you very much, Jill. And I hope that people do contribute to the Alzheimer's Society of BC in Deb's name. I know a lot of people heartbroken to hear the news that Deb Hope, a much-loved former reporter and global news, then BCTV anchor, is struggling with Alzheimer's. We were just talking with Clive Jackson, and I've opened up the phone lines knowing that there are countless people, I'm sure, who have memories, who have stories they'd like to share, or want to wish the family well. So I'm going to try and get to everybody on the lines. And Susan is with us. Susan, good afternoon. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. How about you? Good, thanks. Um, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm really sad for, for, Jill, um, for Deb and her family. And uh, I just had a story when I was a kid. I was uh, with a, a friend. We used to do the coat checks for the Global or BCTV <clears throat> Christmas parties. Mm-hmm. And we were nobodies. We were just we were just kids and kids, and that's how we got our Christmas money was the tips. And there's a lot of big personalities there, and a lot of times we just get a, throw, a coat kind of thrown at us. And she always made a point of talking to us and remembering things from the year before. And she was always very kind. She always left a very nice tip. And I just think it's important that her family know that in, a, in such a brief encounter that I had with Deb, she was always very kind. And that's something that I'll remember for, for, for them and about her. All right. Well, Susan, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thanks. All right. Let's continue down the line. And Jeff is on the line. Good afternoon. Hi, uh, hi Jill. We've uh, spoken twice in the last uh, few months about... Uh, Oh, gosh, I hope I can get through this. My wife, it's uh, it's very similar. I saw the story in the Sun uh, front section today, and I just couldn't believe it. Uh, none of us knew Deb. I remember when she retired, but I didn't know that she had Alzheimer's. And, it, you know, it starts small, and it starts off sometimes with small questions that you think, why would she ask that? She should know the answer. And uh, I just want to offer my condolences, obviously, but uh, to let people know if you suspect that your loved one may have something just isn't right it, it you got to start off with the general practitioner uh, get her into her doctor and get the mini mental test as it's sometimes called and uh, just keep an eye on it and also people need to uh, if you have not already with your loved one gotten an enduring power of attorney uh, because when they start to go in my wife's case it started to pick up rapidly now it is stalled she was 64 when this happened five years ago and now she's uh, still alive she's still able to walk she's still able to talk somewhat and communicate uh, so this was this really hurt when I read this in the Sun today and listened to the interview with um, with Clive because uh, in uh, my wife was in a care home uh, when John Mann came in, the singer of the band The West, mm-hmm. something about The West. Spirit of the West, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I'm telling you, he went so fast, it was just unbelievable. He'd only been in the care home of maybe a month, and it, it just it just really went fast. And I'm so lucky because my wife's dementia has slowed down for some reason, or it's stalled. But anyway, Jill, all the best to the um, Deb Hope family, her husband Roger, and yes, if people can donate to any of the Alzheimer's Society, it's uh, it's top-notch. All right, Jeff, thanks for that. I actually thought uh, of Jeff, who's been on the show before, also uh, somebody who's uh, his wife, also very young, to uh, be getting to be getting a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So let's go to Joe in Vancouver. Joe, what are your thoughts today? Hey, Jill. Um, first of all, it's obviously you know horrible that this has happened to her or anyone. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting her years back, and and like your first caller said, I mean, we were nobodies, right? We were, it was an interview on the street kind of thing, and they were between their their shots or whatever you guys call it, and she just chatted to us, and she was like, 
this totally nice, warm, friendly, obviously intelligent, humorous person. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny how things like this make you think back to people like that. And it, it's a bright spot. And she will be, you know, she'll be sorely, sorely missed out there. All right, Joe, thank you for that. Let's go to Frank. Frank, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, it was always a joy just kind of uh, watching her. And, you know, some of like, uh, well, some of the most enjoyable times uh, were, were when Squire would always crack her up mm. in the sports section. And her, you know, she would just crack up and you could see her trying to hold it in. And uh, that was just funny. That would make the end of the news hour when she just couldn't hold it in anymore because, you know, Squire's antics were, uh, I remember one when Squire did this Dominic Hassock impression and just fell off the chair. I think Deb fell off the chair <laughs> laughing and it was pretty funny. Yeah, the but laugh. Oh, sorry, Frank. The laugh was uh, infectious. Uh, everybody, I think, remembers uh, that laugh. Uh, Bob, my apologies. You've got about 30 seconds. Okay, imagine this. Cut, cut, cut. Finish the story. Barb Starr puts a period on it at the Pentagon. Cut to Deb Hope. Well, that's that. Chuckle, chuckle, wide smile. That's my biggest visual of her now that this has happened. So sad. A real big fan of uh, that particular anchor. She was a genuine, genuine person, although I never knew her. But she's one of those people that you could tell she was that's she was who she is. And she obviously was a cheer to be around. 911.